This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. King Charles III. Well, it's widely believed the most important aspect of his new role, well, it's symbolism, the continuation of an ancient contractual relationship between the monarch and the people at a time of rapid change and uncertainty. So will King Charles be a reformer who could make or break the monarchy? And is he, of all things, the most Islamophile monarch in British history? Mary Dejeski is a columnist with The Independent in the UK, and Peter O'Born is with the Middle East Eye and author of the forthcoming book, The Fate of Abraham, Why the West is Wrong About Islam. And I started by asking Mary Dejeski whether she thought that with the Queen's passing, it may be a crisis point for the institution of the monarchy in Britain. I think it's really too early to say that. Um, one of the things that has struck me so much over the last week has been how almost automatically the support and even you know when you're on the streets, the degree of sort of um, affection and allegiance comes across that's transferred direct from Queen Elizabeth to King Charles and how how just how automatically everybody has embraced the both the person of King Charles and the idea of the succession direct to Charles with no question and I think you know if you if you look at it really with, with a degree of distance that is sort of unusual you don't often apply you know that is if you like, the advantage of an, a hereditary monarchy, that it's absolutely automatic. From the moment of the monarch's death, the heir takes over. We watched that and there were no questions, any idea that that moment might have been exploited by even people questioning the monarchy, not, not, not just um, outright opponents, that's been almost non-existent, um, you know, regardless of what um, some rather controversial moves by the police early on to um, to move on the very, very few protesters. But to me, what has been striking is the way this particular moment has not been exploited for any discussion of the monarchy at all. And yet it remains entirely a question mark of what the British people, how they'll feel in not so much coming weeks and months, but years. And Peter O'Born, there is a post-Brexit crisis as to what Britain's identity will be. And there's been a, a Republican tradition in the UK and indeed Australia. So the question here is, how does the Queen's absence shift the centre of gravity in the UK? Peter O'Born. Well, I just first of all to agree with what uh, Marek Jeffsky just said. I mean, there's... Uh, you know, the, the grief for the death of the Queen is absolutely uh, genuine and uh, real. It's not constructed in any way. And, uh, and it's very interesting to see how the popularity of the new King has, really, has, has zoomed upwards in the last few days. Uh, and I think Mary's right. There is something organic about the relationship between uh, the British uh, people and the monarchy, which goes back uh, millennia, of course. I think that there, there will be 
uh, pile on, uh, attempted against the uh, queen, uh, sorry, the new king. And you can see where it's uh, going to come from. Uh, first of all, though, there is a Republican movement whose commander-in-chief is a former Australian citizen called Rupert Murdoch, um, who's a Republican, and his papers, I will expect, to find make a lot of mischief. He's, I, know, I, I believe he's now an American citizen, but he wasn't Australian, as you know. Uh, he's never had that blessed state of being a British citizen. Um, <laughs> and then we have the Republican left, and uh, they have, will be almost totally silenced. In fact, they have been silenced by Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, who's issued an edict that is Labour MPs shouldn't say anything about this or shouldn't say anything critical. Um, I think that it's the uh, far right in British politics or the radical right which pose a, a very real threat uh, to the monarchy, and that includes the Prime Minister, of Liz Truss, is the hard right Prime Minister. Really? How so? If you, I've been watching her over the last few days. She, she, she's, she's leader of what is emerging as an English national party. Now, the, the, and she stands, and and what she stands for is is really issues. She, she's, she. Look at the way she insulted uh, Nicola uh, Sturgeon. Look at her. She couldn't be bothered to uh, curtsy properly to the to the new king. And her language is a very English language. I, I think uh, it, it. And she tried to muscle in on the. King's journey around the the nations of Britain uh, by accompanying him, uh, and um, that shows a failure to understand the constitutional relationship between the monarch and her chief advisor, the prime minister. So I, I see the um, this hard right government we now have in Britain as being the, a, a, a real threat because it's going to pose so many problems for the monarchy. Just continuing from what Peter was saying, I think there's, um, there is an argument to be made that from all we know about the new king and the causes that he embraced as Prince of Wales, um, that if we are looking at the sort of government that um, Peter's been describing, then you could be looking at the new king as, to an extent, a counterweight to the policies of the new government, because his his causes have been multicultural. They've been um, liberal with a small L. They've been very much towards the environment. I mean, Charles was green before practically anybody was green in the UK. All those causes, which are which have already practically been renounced by Liz Truss, and she's only been prime minister for just over a week. I think at most you could be looking at the new king as a counterweight um, to, if you like, an, uh, a very conservative, illiberal, English-centred new government. But but is that the role of the monarchy, though? Isn't the monarch there to be the servant of the people and to really answer to the parliament? And when you talk about being a counterweight, that sounds like the US checks and balances and inherited its constitution that was really created in response to the British monarchy. Mary? Well, we're going to have to see how that develops because um, it's hard for me to see that um, the king will actually give up on the causes that have been so dear to him for so long. Um, and he's had a very long time to think about how he's going to exercise what 
really influence he might have as king. But of course, there are two things to set against that. One of them is we have no idea at all how long the current government of the UK is actually going to last. Um, We're in very artificial times at the moment. It's not at all clear to me how secure Liz Truss is going to be as prime minister, even with all the advantages that she's had coming coming to the office at the time she has done. The other thing is that I don't think you know I or anybody should overestimate the amount of power that the monarch has. Um, one of the things that is so strong, you know, we talk about the constitutional monarchy. Um, they have very, very little power to exercise. I know you could you, you you can say, well, in a way, by occupying the post of head of state as monarch um, that prevents anybody else aspiring to it or occupying occupying it um, and that maybe um, removes dangers of challenges to to constitutional power but I think that the actual power and influence um, exerted by a monarch is very very small. Okay, now uh, Peter O'Born, Mary Dejeski mentions there that Charles has views on a wide range of issues, nature, climate, urban planning, uh, I think architecture, and as you, Peter, have written at length on Islam, Charles has also been a bit of a figure of fun over the years, and after the death of Princess Diana, he was the target of anger. And then there have been long doubts about, you know, whether he'd resonate in a younger, more diverse Britain, yet you are optimistic about this new king. Tell us why. I don't know about optimistic, but I, th- I think you have to... I think he is a sincere person uh, who, um, you know, has has engaged in... And to really, really, just to follow on what Mary was saying there, I mean, it's, you know, environment has been a, a really long-standing issue in this government the trust government's first actions really is to renounce any any actions about climate change. Uh, clearly, the king now is um, you know has got this very very long standing engagement with Islam. It almost caused him to be called an extremist in um, in the new monocultural uh, government we have now in in with trust and and before that. Johnson and, and and think about the messages the Queen used to send about refugees. Um, there's, that's a very hauntingly beautiful moment. Not long before she died, uh, when in, with Paddington Bear, the symbolism of that was undeniable. That she was welcoming refugees. The uh, where against you know we have that Swella Braverman, who is a sort of an astonishing figure to have as Home Secretary because she is quite convinced that democracy trumps rights. Now, she's quite explicit about that, and that is, a, uh, as history shows you, a terrifying position for a, a government to hold, to hold because it means the majoritarian uh, senses, well, majority sentiment um, can override minorities. And I, I find this all quite uh, frightening. Of course, it is the case that the, the monarch has very little, what Mary is right to say, very little power. The symbolism is important. George Orwell wrote this fascinating commentary on the role of the royal family in relation to, he actually wrote his essay during World War II where he noted 
that the absence of a monarchy after World War One, after the fall of the German monarchy in, in, in two, just after the defeat in World War One, opened the way for the Nazi Party to seize the symbolism of state, or you know, mean turn Nazi iconography into state iconography in Germany. And, and, and what the British monarch, what all monarchies do is to stop part, parties, whether of left or right, uh, political movements of, of, of um, sort of using the public space to impose themselves on uh, all of the population. So it's a quite an important prophylactic role, I think, which the monarchy uh, does have. Yes, uh, Mary, uh, Peter, in a recent Middle East Eye column, uh, describes Charles as a thoughtful man. He studied Islam deeply, even going to the lengths of learning Arabic in order to read the Quran. And it's been revealed in recent times that he opposed the Iraq invasion of 2003, as indeed you and Peter O'Born did. Peter's very critical of this new Liz Trust government. He's called it the most Islamophobic government in British history. But when you consider the ethnically diverse composition of her cabinet, is it fair to say that the government really looks like the one steeped in racism and bigotry? Mary? I think you have to look a little more closely at it. And I, I'm always um, interested in the way that um, people have looked at recent cabinets. And I mean, Boris Johnson's um, cabinets were also really unprecedented, diverse from an ethnic perspective. But if you talk less about ethnicity and if you talk about class or education, then the diversity rather melts away um, because the members of the cabinet have large, uh, of, from ethnic minorities have largely been at some of Britain's most prestigious, most expensive schools. So you could say that the diversity is largely in appearance and less in substance. And I think people ought to look at that a, a little bit more closely. But one of the things that has that, that, that has certainly struck me, and it struck me through the through the Queen's Jubilee earlier uh, earlier this year, when you look at the crowds who've been out in the streets, the crowds um, who are standing in the huge queue along the south bank of the Thames in London um, to file past the coffin, the diversity of those queues, both in, in, in ethnicity and in attitudes and visually insofar as you can, you, you, you can divine the social mix from the queues that you're, you're, you're seeing. You're seeing a very, very diverse country. And I think that um, the new king and you know, as prince before, he was very, very aware of that in a way maybe that the queen was aware of it as head of the Commonwealth, but I'm not sure that she was quite as aware of it in the country at large. I think Charles has been aware of it for a very, very long time. And I think it's almost 20 years ago when he raised the question um, of whether he would um, take on the title of defender of the faith and whether he might adapt it to be defendant of faith, which would broaden that out. In the event, later on, uh, closer to the day, he 
he said that he thought that the um, traditional term defender of the faith um, allowed for different interpretations, allowed for a broader definition. And it was striking to me that when he was proclaimed king by the um, accession Mm -hmm. council, he took the title defender of the faith. Um, So he reverted to tradition there, but it seems to me that he's been very, very conscious that he will be king of a much more diverse country in very, very many ways um, than his mother was. That was Mary Dejeski from the UK Independent and Peter O'Born from the Middle East Eye. Up next, how Malcolm Turnbull helped defeat the Morrison Coalition government. So, why do you think the Morrison government lost power last May? The slow vaccine rollout? The treatment of women in politics? the failure to embrace net zero emissions more enthusiastically? Did the coalition, having been in power for nine years, just run out of puff? Or was the big loss due to Scott Morrison's failure to present a clear, compelling policy vision for the nation, as John Howard told me recently? Well, my next guest says all these explanations fail to recognise the contribution of one man, Malcolm Bly Turnbull. Aaron Patrick is author of Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party Civil War. It's published by HarperCollins. Aaron is also Senior Correspondent at the Australian Financial Review. Aaron, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tom. Now, you write, uh, Malcolm Turnbull involved himself in every significant scandal and challenge of the Morrison government. Tell us more. Well, Malcolm Turnbull was a constant figure during the Morrison government. He was there at every moment that the Morrison government stumbled or ran into a significant problem. And Mr Turnbull presented himself as a sort of objective commentator on the political events of events of the day. But as I argue in ego, he was far more than just a disinterested bystander. He made himself a, an active participant in the political process through his public and commentary and also, I think, some of his behaviour behind the scenes. And in that sense, Malcolm Turnbull was one of the most important figures during the Morrison government and I think deserves some of the credit or the blame, depending on your perspective, for the failures and the defeat of the Morrison government. A quasi-opposition leader, that's how you describe Turnbull, who you say led the effort to persuade these wavering metropolitan liberals towards independence. But what about the role of Simon Holmes Accord? I mean, he set up a very big slush fund to promote the cause of these so-called teal independents. Didn't he have more influence on liberals who voted teal than, say, Turnbull? Simon Holmes Accord was undoubtedly an important figure in the, I guess, the rise of what we call the so-called teal independence. But I would argue that Malcolm Turnbull was the father, maybe even the godfather of the teals, because it was his 
political inspiration, I think, that that helped ignite this great anger in the inner cities amongst sort of liberal or liberal-leaning voters who just repelled at repelled from Scott Morrison's conservatism. And, you know, Malcolm Turnbull, when he took over the Liberal Party, was a really exciting and, and energising figure, looked like he pulled across half a million voters to the Liberal Party when he took over from, from, from Tony Abbott. Um, and in a way, Malcolm Turnbull's personal ideology and philosophies are really in line with the Teal Independence, and I think... Um, he should get a lot of the credit for the inspiration um, for the rise of the Teals. And I also think on a practical level, um, you know, his his very lukewarm endorsement of Liberal candidates, unless remember he's still a member of the Liberal Party, I think was a tacit signal to many Liberal voters that he thought it was okay for them to vote for the Teals. No question he, Turnbull, resonated with those metropolitan uh, Liberal seats. And you just think about them. You know, in Sydney, you've got Wentworth, his old seat, North Sydney, Joe Hockey's old seat, uh, Raringa, Tony Abbott's old seat, McKellar on the northern beaches of Sydney, that's Bronwyn Bishop's old seat. And then, of course, you've got Melbourne. This is fascinating. Kuyong, of course, Josh Frydenberg's seat, Robert Menzies' old seat, Higgins, Peter Costello, Harold Holt, John Gordon's old seat. It's extraordinary. Goldstein, David Kemp's old seat, Curtin in Perth, that's Julie Bishop's old seat. These were the crown jewels of the Liberal Party. You say that Turnbull resonated with them, yet they're now all teal. How do the Liberals win them back? That is the million-dollar question, and I don't think anyone's come up with, with the answer, answer yet. And clearly, look, the Liberal Party is split between its right and left wings, conservative and moderate, no matter how you want to describe it. So the question is, what does the Liberal Party do? And the Conservatives and the Liberal Party basically say, we probably can't win back these seats in the short term. We need to go out and go for the outer suburbs, suburbs in Western Sydney, which voted against same-sex marriage, you know, northern metropolitan Melbourne and so forth. And that's their perspective Part of the problem is, though, is that the weight of power within the Liberal Party is in those seats that you've just listed. Mm. So a lot of the Liberal Party's main donors, its most active participants, its most prominent figures live in the electorates that have been lost. And it's hard for them psychologically and organisationally to say, let's give up these seats for good. Let's not try and bring Turak or um, Bellevue Hill back into the Liberal fold and we'll go out to the outer suburbs where we can pitch to working-class conservative voters who might be attracted to Peter Dutton. Okay, so the challenge here for the Liberals to win back these teal seats back into the Liberal column, that's going to be very difficult. But that's, that's Aaron, I'd push back here and say that's regardless of Malcolm Turnbull's conduct, doesn't that suggest that Turnbull's influence, after all, is limited and that the problems with the Liberal Party in these seats are more deep-seated? I would say, Tom, that Malcolm Turnbull's behaviour, in a way, was provided on two levels. And there is the sort of ideological or philosophical signalling that we've already discussed, but there was also the sort of tactical or day-to-day effects where Malcolm Turnbull turned himself into a commentator 
on all the, not ups and downs of the Morrison government, but the downs of the Morrison government. The Brittany Higgins case, the allegation against um, Alan Tudge, the education minister, he was incredibly um, effective at damaging Scott Morrison over the diplomatic rift with France about the nuclear submarines. So I argue in, in this book, Ego, that Malcolm became such an effective critic of the Morrison government that he should be given a lot of the credit or the blame for the huge damage that the government um, suffered. I think the moral question is, was this the right or wrong thing to do for an ex-Prime Minister? So clearly, if you hate the Morrison government, you'd be out there saying, good on you, Malcolm, go for it. Thank you for exposing what these people are like. But obviously, within the Liberal Party, Party, they're deeply, deeply upset and they feel betrayed by the man they made Prime Minister. So for me, this is a fascinating study in the conduct of one of the most interesting politicians we've seen in Australia in the last few decades. Okay, but what's the difference between Malcolm Turnbull after he loses power and his carry-on towards the Liberal Party? What's the difference between Turnbull then and the conduct of Tony Abbott after Turnbull knocks him off in 2015? Abbott made it very clear there'd be no sniping from Tony Abbott, and yet he was a constant irritant to the Turnbull government, so much so that Malcolm Turnbull called him a miserable ghost. So what's the difference? There were some similarities, I I think, although the primary difference is probably the level of persistence and the effect it had. So Tony Abbott would go on commercial AM radio and if asked a question about the Turnbull government, he would often, I think, answer in a way that drew attention to the friction tensions between himself and his successor. Um, I would argue that Malcolm Turnbull was much more effective, perhaps diligent, at his campaign to damage the Morrison government. I think, in a way, Tony Abbott was acting more in an ad hoc sense, whereas Malcolm Turnbull was going full on to try and contribute to the destruction of the Morrison government. Aaron, many people would agree with you, and and they would include many people in the Liberal Party. They'd say that, yes, Turnbull cared above all about settling scores with members of his party and that his politics is always about himself. But in fairness to Turnbull, and he's been a past guest on this program, I mean, he would argue that his politics are about a larger cause. He would say, for instance that he truly believes that the nation should fully embrace the energy transition, that women in politics should be treated with dignity. And he'd also argue that Canberra under Morrison ratted on a perfectly good nuclear sub-deal with France. How would you respond to Malcolm Turnbull? Well, I asked Malcolm Turnbull this, and I said, what is your motivation? Why are you doing this? And he said, I've got an obligation as a former prime minister and a public figure to use my understanding of government and policy to help inform the public debate. I'm out there doing this for the good of the nation. So in that sense, Malcolm Turnbull's described his behaviour as essentially altruistic. I don't accept that. I think um, it's pretty obvious that Malcolm Turnbull and 
any other informed observer could see that what he was doing was highly politically damaging to the Morrison government. And, you know, in his commentary and behaviour was overwhelmingly, vastly overwhelmingly critical. And so other prime ministers um, have not sought to conduct themselves in such a way. And I don't see any ex-prime minister in the post-World War II period behaving in the same way that Malcolm Turnbull has, going out, waging what appears to be a campaign against their successor from the same party. And in that sense, I think Malcolm Turnbull behaved in a remarkable way and it's worth us looking at it and examining it and trying to understand what was going on. Following on from that very point, and you make this argument in your book, you mentioned that three other Liberal leaders turned on their party after they lost the leadership. John Gordon, Prime Minister from 68 to 71, Malcolm Fraser, Prime Minister from 75 to 83, and John Hewson, who was the leader of the Liberal Party from 1990 to 1991. Your argument, just to clarify, is that Turnbull had more political impact after he lost power than the, those three others. It is. I thought I thought uh, Malcolm Turnbull was far more politically potent than any of those three. Wow. John John Gorton became independent and ran in the Senate. I think he got a, in the ACT. I think he got seventeen percent of the vote. Mm-hmm. As um, an independent, that's right. Yep. Malcolm Fraser stayed stayed largely quiet until the later years of his life, when he sort of seemed to come out as sort of green type politician, mm. but he did not take a high public profile. John Hewson um, has emerged as a sort of teal or green-like um, commentator in the press, but he was, I would say that his his impact has also been pretty minimal. Um, Malcolm Turnbull was the immediate past prime minister and he was commenting in detail on events of the day And I think he was also providing encouragement to many of the government's enemies. And I think in that sense, his contribution to the Morrison government's downfall was significant. Okay. Now, Janet Albrechtson, another critic of Turnbull, writing in the Australian newspaper, she says that Turnbull is actually a bit like Donald Trump or Boris Johnson. And her argument is that their unbridled egos, and I'm quoting Janet Albrechtson, their unbridled egos unfolded and imploded. Is the analogy plausible? It's a powerful and fascinating analogy. Look, I called the book Ego because Malcolm Turnbull used to joke about how he would have the biggest ego in the room. And I don't think there's anything wrong with wrong with prime ministerial ego. (laughs) The question is, how do we as individuals, particularly senior political leaders, conduct ourselves after we have gone through traumatic experiences like essentially being fired by our colleagues? And that's an unpleasant experience. And I would say that we're entitled to judge Malcolm Turnbull by his reaction to what happened to him. And Janet's other point, I think, is that um, in the case of uh, uh, Trump and uh, uh, Johnson, but especially Trump, their determination to stay in office uh, after they lost the support of their colleagues or the nation, 
that risked being dangerously bad for their nations. And I think in your book, Ego, and my guest again is Aaron Patrick. Uh, the book is called Ego, Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party's Civil War. Your point in Ego, uh, Aaron, is that Turnbull's exit from power was also potentially destabilising. Tell us more. Well, one of the fascinating things that I came I came across when I was researching the book that I wasn't really aware of, which was that Malcolm Turnbull, when his cabinet was trying to convince him to resign in 2018, wanted to call an early election. Like, he, he began the process of going to and asking the Governor-General to dissolve Parliament. Look, it's too strong to call it a coup, but what he was going to do was was going to sort of go to war with elements of his own political party through the process of a federal election. Now, this is going into pretty extreme territory for Australian democracy. Mm. And so he would have been going to the people of Australia saying, my colleagues want to get rid of me. You can overrule them. You can stop this happening. Now, it's often called um, what happened to Malcolm Turnbull and other political um, prime ministers lost their jobs, coups, as in coup d'etat. Well, that's not true. When prime ministers are removed from Australia, it's a democratic process. It's part of the Westminster system that members of parliament choose the prime minister not the public. So for Malcolm Turnbull to consider using an election to try and keep his position, I think risks serious instability in our democracy. And I think it's being underanalyzed because it could have been a very dangerous moment for Australia. And how does all that affect Turnbull's legacy? Now, the Liberal Parliamentary Party kicked Turnbull out of the leadership twice first in 2009, then in 2018, as we've just discussed. Although he resonated with those metropolitan, erstwhile safe Liberal Party seats, as you mentioned, they're now teal, the, the reality is Turnbull lost almost all of Tony Abbott's electoral fat at the 2016 election. Term, Abbott won a massive landslide in 2013. Turnbull nearly lost that election in 2016 uh, because he, he lost those Liberal seats in northern Tasmania, Western Sydney, all across Queensland. So, Aaron Patrick, finally, how do you think history will view Malcolm Turnbull? Malcolm Turnbull was a very complicated man, Tom, and in many ways he was a good leader. He was incredibly articulate. He was thoughtful. He was intelligent. He really wanted the best for Australia, and he worked very hard for Australia. And I think he did, did some really good things for this country. At the same time, he wasn't effective politically and he struggled to manage his own party. He failed to manage his own party. And when put to the test, when he put himself to voters, they rejected him. He almost lost the 2016 election. And so for that, his colleagues lost trust in him and they removed him. So I think in terms of the ranking of Australian prime ministers, I think perhaps we give him a B, you know, maybe a B plus if he wanted to be wanted to be charitable. But I would say he's tarnished his own legacy by his post office behaviour. That was Aaron Patrick from the Australian Financial Review. His new book is called Ego: Malcolm Turnbull and the Liberal Party Civil War. It's published by Harper Collins.
Up next, the geopolitics of the new space race. Well, in the last space race, back in the late 1950s and 60s, there was really only two competitors, the United States and the Soviet Union. And even at the height of the Cold War, international agreements and treaties about rules in space, they were negotiated. But the world today, well, it's a very different place. Space has become contested and crowded, and the goals and motivations for competitors, they've changed. To discuss what the new space race means, the geopolitics behind it, and how tensions might be managed, I'm joined by Cassandra Steer. She's Deputy Director and Mission Specialist with the ANU Institute of Space, and she's co-editor of War and Peace in Outer Space, Law, Policy and Ethics, as published by Oxford University Press. And Cassandra joins us from Geneva. Hi there, Cassandra. Hi, Tom. And what are you doing in Geneva? Uh, so this entire week, there is a UN working group discussing how we can reduce threats in space through norms, rules and principles of responsible behaviour. So what this means is it's really trying to bring countries together to deal with what's been an arms control issue in space for quite some time. For decades, there have been roadblocks about whether or not we can come up with a new treaty to prohibit certain weapons in space or not. And definitely geopolitics has been part of the reason why those roadblocks have been there. And Quite recently, in the last two years, there's been a decision to move those discussions towards rather than trying to regulate specific weapons or technologies, we can try and come up with agreed norms of responsible behaviour in space. So that those discussions are happening all this week in Geneva. And that explains the motivation to spend big money on returning to space. Now, there's a lot of countries heading into space, and this subject doesn't get enough attention. Competition's heating up. Tell us more about this um, space program, this US-European space program called Art Artemis. Uh, what's its status and objective? Yeah, it's, it really is a, a new race to return to the moon. You're absolutely right. Um, so Artemis is named after the goddess of the moon, um, and that's the twin sister of Apollo. And Apollo obviously was the name of the program that took uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon uh, in 1969. So Indeed. the US named that program after after the twin sister of Apollo. Um, <laughs> right. It is it is indeed an international program. So they're partnering with um, countries through the European Space Agency. Australia is a partner in that program through our space agency, and we have Australian companies developing things like um, lunar um, robots to do some exploration of the lunar surface. And the whole point of returning to the moon, so the Artemis program is going to bring humans back to the moon for the first time since 1972. It's going to put the first woman on the moon, the first person of colour on the moon, and these are all really great aspirations, but it's not really what's dri the driving force behind it. The driving force behind it is a new race for resources on the moon. Yes, and it's not just the US and Europeans. There's lots of other countries with ambitions to go to space. Tell us more. That's right. So China and Russia have a memorandum of understanding to work together on a joint program. Um, and they plan on landing um, ro robotic, so automated uh, lunar craft by 2025 or 2026, which is the same time period within which Artemis is going to land robotics and then humans on the moon. And then there are countries like India, which plans to go to the moon. The United Arab Emirates has a program. 
Um, Israel has tried a couple of times to at least land a, a lunar module on the moon. Um, so it's starting to become uh, very much an international competition. And that reflects, I mean, you said the space age of the 1960s was very much between the Soviets and the US. The fact that there are many more countries involved this time and that they are dependent on commercial actors for a lot of the technologies, that's a reflection of geopolitics today. Okay, many more countries are involved, but what about the Russians? Aren't they leaving the International Space Station program? They they have said that they are going to leave after 2024. So at the moment, the, the, the International Space Station has a series of ongoing agreements every five to 10 years. The, the partner countries have to sign an agreement to continue to fund it. And every 10 years or so, um, or every five to 10 years, there have been indications both from the US side and the Russian side that they may want to cease funding it. And of course, the recent announcement by Roscosmos, the, the Russian space agency, was timed around these tensions of what's going on in, in Ukraine, of course, to say, look, that we're going to pull out of this international cooperative agreement. But all they said was they would do it after 2024, which is the date at which the current funding agreement runs out anyway. And the US had indicated that it probably would wind up the funding a few years after that. So the, I think the statement and the, and the messaging around it was very political, but the likelihood of it winding up in the next decade or so was already on the cards. What does all this mean for space treaties? Because, I mean, with this clamour to venture into space, it obviously means some degree of cooperation and established protocols. And, you know, during the height of the Cold War, we had this, um, you know, these agreements between the United States and the Soviets. I think there's the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, the 1979 Moon Agreement. I mean, do those agreements stand up today? They absolutely do. So the, the 1967 Outer Space Treaty has well over 100 countries that have signed onto it. So wow. although the text of the treaty, yeah, it's got it's got really significant participation. And obviously not all of those countries or hardly any of them were active in space when the treaty was drafted. But a number of them, in particular, you know, the kind of traditional middle powers um, that in, in the Cold War period and, and also today. So European powers like France and Germany, um, some Asian powers like Japan, um, the UK and Australia and New Zealand, all of these countries and a lot of smaller nations too, um, particularly equatorial nations because of um, the, the importance of particular orbital slots that are above those countries. A lot of countries supported that treaty because it was the beginning of humans having entered space. It was very clear space was going to become a key strategic and military domain for intelligence gathering, for observation, for telecommunications and into the future. And so countries wanted to ensure that it didn't become an, the next battlefield, particularly a nuclear battlefield between the Soviets and the US. So the principles of that treaty are very, very strong and they absolutely hold up today. And they say things like there's no uh, appropriation in space, no country can claim ownership uh, in space. Um, but at the same time, the nation state retains responsibility for all of its activities in space, whether those are governmental or commercial activities, the international responsibility rests with the nation state. What does all this mean for resource extraction? Because we talked about that, um, that uh, Artemis Accord, that boldly asserts that resource extraction will be, that, that'll occur, it's lawful, and clearly being the first to be in a position to mine, that's an advantage. What minerals and resources are on the moon and how might they be used? 
Yeah, so this is one of the key tension points that, you know, although I said absolutely the Outer Space Treaty stands up today, it lacks some clarity about what it means, you know, so no country can claim ownership. The US having planted a flag on the moon is purely symbolic. But if there are countries and or companies that now want to extract resources, mine the moon or mine asteroids, it's unclear. There's an enormous debate as to whether or not that amounts to appropriation. So if you're a smaller nation where Western powers have come in and mined your resources, you're absolutely going to think that that's appropriation, right? Particularly if these other countries have benefited economically. And that's the concern of what's going to go on with, with this um, lunar mining. So what they're looking for is ice and water in particular, and then some gases like helium-3 that might be able to be used for fuels. And this is all about supporting long-term human habitation. So coupled with the Artemis program is a program to build a, a permanent space station, much like the International Space Station, but this one's going to be orbiting the moon, human habitation on the moon. And so we need to have resources, in particular water, to support that. And eventually, the plan is in many, many decades from now, what we learn from that is what will get humans to Mars. But, but I think what's going to happen in the next, even the next five to 10 years, when this mining starts to become a reality, that's really going to bring these geopolitical tensions to a head. Um, and there are efforts internationally to try and come up with some international regimes to govern it legally. But, but there are huge tension points and disagreements about what that should look like. Well, we're talking about nations and governments and geopolitical tensions there. But what about private enterprise and corporations? I mean, is there anything stopping, say, a big mining company like a BHP or Rio Tinto or an entrepreneur like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Could they run a mission to the moon, say, set up a base and start extracting minerals and resources? Cassandra? I mean, the short answer is yes. Uh, and in wow. fact, SpaceX, <laughs> SpaceX is involved in the Artemis program. Um, they will be providing some of the, the not the launch technologies to get there, but some of the landing technologies. And they, SpaceX has made very explicit that its plan is to get humans to, to Mars. So it is going to need to learn how to um, extract and use those kinds of resources. It's worrying, right? But at the same time, as I mentioned, international space law says that the nation state is responsible. So no company, no commercial entity can do anything in space without getting licenses and authorization from the country in which they are registered as a company. And sometimes from multiple countries, depending on how they're operating and where they're launching from. So no company can do anything in space without falling under the laws and jurisdiction of, of their country. Um, so it's up to the nation states to be putting in place laws, which which many countries have, which really do um, regulate these companies, regulate the sustainability of their activities. But the tension really is that there are lots of smaller nations who are supposed to have equal access to space and to its benefits, who are being locked out because it's a race between the most powerful and most economic. Not everyone signed on to this Artemis. I mean, what are their concerns? Yeah, that's right. So, so the Artemis Accords were originally billed as an agreement to sign on to if, you, if a country wanted to become part of the Artemis program. It's since kind of expanded its intentions and now the US says, no, this is just a document 
to agree on certain principles where we don't have clarity around uh, around the law, in particular around resource extraction, um, some things around safety zones. Um, some of the principles are great. We need technological interoperability. We need data sharing. We need communications. We need to protect astronauts. Um, but, but the tension points around these particular principles around resource extraction are, are what is challenging. So there are 21 countries that have signed on to those um, agreements uh, as of today. And some of those are, are smallish nations who may or may not actually have the ability to, you know, to have a lunar program, but they want to see clarity around the principles. And that will actually help to reduce those tensions, I think, in the end. And what does that mean for Australia's space program, Cassandra? I and mean, what are we working towards? We're in a tricky position. So we we very much partner with NASA on a, on a lot of work. Um, you know, the first uh, commercial launch outside of the US took place um, through NASA as a client in the north of Australia just a, a couple of months ago up in East Arnhem Land. And our Australian Space Agency has a program called Moon to Mars where it's helping Australian researchers and Australian companies to get that access to the NASA program, which gives them funding and gives them the ability to, to be really part of the, the bigger space program. But we're in a tricky position because we've signed the Artemis Accords, but we're also one of only 18 countries that have signed the Moon Agreement, that other treaty you mentioned from 1979. That, uh -huh. that doesn't have hundreds of countries. It only has 18, wow. most of which are very small nations and not big space powers. And that, that treaty was an attempt, in fact, to protect lunar resources against commercial exploitation, uh, which is why the bigger powers did not sign on to it. And that treaty obliges Australia to come up with some kind of international legal regime at such a time as mining on the moon is about to become feasible. That's the language of the treaty. So it looks oh like it's about to become feasible. And on the one hand, we've signed the Artemis Accords, which say resource extraction is lawful under the Outer Space Treaty and will take place. And on the other hand, we've got the moon agreement obligation, which says actually nothing on the moon can belong to any entity and we need to come up with an international legal regime. So. Australia actually has a huge opportunity to demonstrate some international leadership here. We can, we can come up with a regime and we can be leaders in coming up with the regime to help govern these new activities in space. Well, it's difficult right now just enforcing and preserving what's called a, a rules-based liberal international order here on Earth. So it's uh, presumably more difficult when it comes to the geopolitics of space governments. Look, I was just going to say space has, has so far been characterised by strategic restraint. That's changing though. It is. Strategic restraint is what kept, the, there was a shared um, agreement of values actually between the Soviets and the Americans, despite it being a very tense period in history, that they both very quickly realised because of testing weapons in space and seeing that you can't contain the impacts of weapons in space because of its physics. So very quickly they realised that they needed to, if they wanted to both continue to have access to space and all of the benefits it gave them for intelligence and communications and so on, that they needed to have they needed to restrain themselves. Strategic restraint said keep space stable and peaceful in order to keep it useful. And that we saw a move away from that, I think in the early 2000s in particular, when um, the US started to talk about dominance and predominance in space when China tested an anti-satellite weapon uh, in 2007 by destroying one of its own satellites and creating an enormous amount of debris, much of which is still in orbit today. Uh, the US, India and Russia have all tested similar destructive uh, anti-satellite weapons, which is exactly what's being discussed here in Geneva this week and how we can prevent that happening in the future. Because the debris it creates is an enormous threat 
to all of the satellites that you and I depend on on a daily basis for navigation, for Uber Eats, for telecommunications, for finance, for weather, for tracking bushfires, for search and rescue. You know, we use space hundreds of times a day. Um, and so there was a move away from that strategic restraint and to a greater sense of competition in space. Um, with weapons testing, with, you know, the US creating Space Force, a lot of countries, including Australia, creating space commands within our armed forces. Um, but what we're seeing in particular with these discussions here in Geneva and in, in the UN is that countries are starting to realise the urgency of protecting space from becoming a battle space because of how thoroughly dependent all of us are on, on space technologies. And so there's a move away, there's actually a move back towards strategic restraint, although now it's been given another name. Now we're talking about responsible behaviours. And some of that links back into sustainability of future activities on the moon. So we're starting to see, I think, a greater awareness globally about how important space is and a shift back towards, you know, we need to have shared norms and indeed some kind of international rules-based order to govern the complexity of these activities. That's Cassandra Steer, Deputy Director and Mission Specialist with the ANU Institute of Space and co-editor of War and Peace in Outer Space, Law, Policy and Ethics. That's published by Oxford University Press. For more on this topic, have a listen or read the article on the growing problem of space junk with Rand Corporation lawyer Douglas Lagore. Details on the Between the Lines homepage or scroll back in your podcast feeds to the May 28 episode. Well, that's the show. And if you'd like to hear past episodes of Between the Lines, including my recent exchanges with veteran US Republican foreign policymaker, John Bolton, or the country Liberal Party Senator, Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, they're all available online. You can subscribe to the podcasts for free. Details on the homepage, or just scroll back through your recent podcast feeds. I'm Tom Switzer. Till next time, bye for now. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.